Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Energy Talk Podcast. My name is Olubumi Day, and thank you so much for tuning in again this week. Today I have a very interesting story to share. But before we go into the story, first I need to give you some context. Today we're talking about the oil industry, specifically about the things that happened in the industry around 2014, 2015. That was the year that the oil prices fell very drastically from about $100 per barrel to about 20, 25. And that had massive impact on the industry and many people lost their jobs. Today we're speaking to Putra from Indonesia. He works as an area manager for Halliburton, which is one of the biggest oil service companies in the world. And he's going to share with us the story of how he survived this huge downturn and how he not only survived, but managed to improve his own career and develop so many new skills and learn a lot during the period of crisis. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hi, hi. Uh, my name is Putra. I'm from Indonesia. And thanks all for having me tonight. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I have been looking forward to having you on. Uh, actually, I met Putra on LinkedIn. And the reason why I was so eager to interview him is because of his very impressive uh, job profile. So, Putra, can you just tell me about uh, how you started out, your educational background and uh, your early job experience and everything along those lines? Okay, um, so again, Olu, thanks again for having me. Uh, have a good evening and a good afternoon uh, for your time in Qatar. So my name is Putra. I've been with the oil industry for about 13 years now. Um, my background is actually uh, in education. It's a petroleum engineering. And then after graduation, I joined Halliburton as a field hand. I worked in the field for quite some time, so I think about three to four years. And then I went to the office and I went through several projects. Um, in the oil, gas, and also in the geothermal. So the unique part about him being in Indonesia is that we got a lot of geothermal potential. So I had the privilege of joining one of the biggest uh, geothermal projects that we ever have in Indonesia. And the last two years, I'm based in central Indonesia, which is an area called Kalimantan. It's uh, one of the largest gas-producing area for Indonesia. So I've been working there for two years as an area manager for Halliburton. So 13 years is a long time, I know, for uh, someone to stay in a company. So I'm sure uh, you may have some question why it's happening. <laughs> so yes, we can talk about that. Trust me, I do. Uh, actually, I've learned something already. I did not know Indonesia had lots of uh, geothermal resources that you could tap into. I didn't know that they were uh, actually uh, large-scale uh, geothermal projects, actually. That's, that's a first for me. Okay, all right. Yeah, we can talk about it a little bit tonight, I guess. Okay. Okay, so uh, you started off it, uh, field, uh, as a field hand, as you said, and that was back in 2005. So uh, first, I'm going to ask the basic question. Why did you stay for so long at uh, Alliburton? What's, what's, uh, was it the, the company culture or did you just feel inclined to, to be there because that's what you felt we needed? I think uh, for me personally, you know, in, in the past 13 years, I've been exposed to so many different things. And I think the company has been well in uh, allowing me room to grow. Um, for me personally, challenge is my primary uh, driving factor for a career. It's not, you know, it, it's not something else. For me, it's uh, having exposed to different challenges every other year. So if you notice in my profile, I pretty much change role every two years. Yes. And sometimes it goes from one part, you know, I'm, I was in the quality group uh, for about two years, leading uh, Halliburton Indonesia on one of the first API certification we ever had in Q2, uh, and then moved to another part. So it, it's to me, uh, I think the 13 years, the reason is is that I've been having the room to grow 
and seeing so many different things from the business side, from the quality, from the technical sides and what. So mm-hmm. I guess a long, that's a long short of it. Okay, uh, so for the listeners who don't know, I actually have my <coughs> educational background in petroleum engineering and that's why I have to ask the next question. How did you manage to have so much uh, freedom to change your job role severally with your educational background? Did you see it as a challenge to do that or is it something that came naturally as you progressed through your career? I think uh, in everybody's uh, career path, I think every now and then you will see those junctions, right? I mean, well, first of all, I think uh, we need to be open, right? That that kind of mindset where uh, you may see something that's new and entirely uh, different from your background, but your your willingness on your mindset of willing to, to step into the unknown, I think that's number one. Mm-hmm. And number two is actually actively try to pursue those advantage, uh, those uh, positions when you think a new opportunity arises. I mean, to, to give example right i mean the geothermal uh, projects that we had yeah. in in halliburton indonesia uh, the the projects that we had is a, is a project management kind of type it's not actually a very uh, technical specific it's a combination of uh, project management and it was something very new for the country basically nobody in the country know exactly what to do and back there is a lot of uncertainty but when when you see something new and to me something new is always interesting so i try to step in although it's quite risky Yes, and it's is. quite fun. So, so uh, again, to your que- to your point, I think uh, how how do I get the privilege of moving from here and there? I think it's keeping a wide eye open on what's new that's happening in your count- country and your company, and you know, ask the people that you need to ask. You know, can can I can I get a new opportunity here and there? And before you know it, you know, you, the doors can open actually. Most of the time, we, we tend to, to, to be in our silos, but I think from time to time, we need to look outside as well for new things to do. That is amazing. Uh, you mentioned something about taking risks. Uh, I think uh, the petroleum industry in general is one of the most uh, safety-conscious industries in the world. People aren't really too eager to take unnecessary risks. Didn't you feel worried that if you moved into something you weren't very familiar with, that there was a chance things wouldn't go so well? Was that ever a concern in your mind? For sure, for sure. I think, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Um, I actually had a discussion with a colleague of mine talking about how do we make uh, people in the petroleum industry that is pretty much rule-bound. I mean, as you know, oil and gas is pretty rule-bound. We have a strict procedures on safety standards. And how do you get to, to them, to drive them to think more creatively and open to challenges? And I think it's it's a bit of a balance in both, right? I mean, we can remain uh, very strict in terms of uh, approaching procedures and safety standards, but in the growth mindset as well, we, we need to keep that in, in a, you know, in 20, 30% in how you manage your mind, manage your career. So coming back to your question, yes, of course, there is that chance to fail, but uh, we just need to draw the line on which part of our business that we need to strict uh, you know to do very strict um, standards and so, so so not to take any risk and we also need to set a certain part of our career and our business into the growth mindset right i mean other than the, uh, because if we don't do that we're practically gonna stop growing that's how i see it anyway so yeah, it if it makes any sense yeah it does um so 13 plus years over now and uh, you're still with the company you have a new job role 
do you see yourself in a position where you're speaking to people who are just coming into the industry as well? People who are like just entry level and they're a bit more cautious about their careers. They don't want to make mistakes. And how do you interact with them? What what do you tell them? Or do you just don't just play it safe for the first few years like you did? Because you were in your first row for about almost four years, as you said. So how do you, how, what advice do you give to uh, to new employees that you see entering the industry? Okay. Um, you know, I, I'm, I don't have, a, to be to be frank, right, I mean, there's there's so many more people that's more competent to answer that question, but uh, I can give my impression on it. I think, um, number one, um, in this day and age, I think that the biggest challenge for the young generation is being impatient. Um, we, we're at the same time that, that the oil industry is uh, pretty much at a pretty stable and stagnant level. We're seeing all kinds of industry moving very fast. And I think that the, the, for young people, many people want to see, you know, I want to be in that job role, you know, after a year I want to be in there and there and there. Well, the reality of our career is that sometimes we really need to be patient, right? I mean, the, the right opportunity may not show up in two, three years, but, but when it shows up, let's make sure uh, to, to pick it up. So, so I guess the first um, tips I would say to, to anybody entering the industry is to be patient, right? I mean, we can't expect everything to move uh, at lightning pace all the time. I mean, uh, we try to absorb whatever uh, new knowledge that we have around you mm-hmm. and try to figure out your way around in the first two years of your career. Because to me, uh, now here comes the second part. What I do think is missing with many engineers when they join the industry is that they're, te- they're treating their career as like, uh, you know, a very uh, strict and predetermined path of development. Mm-hmm. So, of course, everybody can... Uh, free to, to, you know, to think whichever way, way they choose, but I tend to see a career as an opportunity of learning. So I see my company as an opportunity of learning. To me, my company is a big playground, right? I mean, like, like when I joined as a field engineer, what I challenge every single one of those new field engineers that also joined my company, I told them this, even let's say you're, uh, to, to name specifics for my industry, like let's, let's say you're a wireline field engineer, right, and you're working in a field. Mm-hmm. My first message to these girls or these guys is that when you're in the field, try to absorb so many things around you. I mean, even though you're a specifics for that particular line of division in Halliburton or in Slumberger or wherever you are, you're actually exposed to many different people, right? Yes. And those first few years is actually, to me, is your biggest uh, opportunity to figure out what do you want to do within the next decades of your life. I mean, you never know. I mean, first, the first year you're in a field and you met some other guys in the drilling department and some guys in the drilling fluids or in this division and that division. So I think it's to be open. That's my second tip is to be open and try to absorb as many things as you have uh, around your uh, environment, working environment, and try not to be too uh, strict that this is my career path and this is how I need to go. So. Maybe you'll find some surprising new things along the way. So that's my tips, I guess. I, I think that's actually a very good tip. Okay, so since you brought it up, I guess we'll go into that direction. You mentioned that the uh, oil industry can be a bit slow sometimes. And I think in the past few years, especially since 2014, that has been even more evident because uh, uh, around 2014-15, that's when the... Uh, the oil prices kind of crashed and around that time there was a lot of adjustments in the petroleum sector in general not just the oil service industries especially the ENPs and the multinational corporations as well 
and this affected everybody the investors but most particularly it affected lots of people in their job roles lots of people were probably laid off or they had reduced roles and that was a large period of adjustment um in the petroleum industry so that is why your your uh your career progression is a bit more surprising because even with the uh the downturn and all the things that happened in that time uh how come you were still stable in where you were was it because you had such an open uh you had such a wide sphere or was it just that it was something else um so i guess before i mean before talking about me it's not really about me, right? We're talking about the industry as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I see, uh, well, first of all, let's talk a bit about the downturn. In 2014, when everything collapsed pretty much in the oil and gas industry, like you said, many, many things changes. Um, and I think the pendulum swing a bit too far back then, and it'll eventually it's going to normalize, right? But mm-hmm. um, what is also that we need to note is that Overall, as an industry, especially in the services sector, I mean, in, in the energy services sector globally, I think between the major companies, uh, I think 30 to 40 percent of the workforce was lost during the period between 2014 to 2018. Yeah. So it, it was very significant and the blow was very significant. But at the same time, it also opens up new opportunities, right? Like, for example, if your organization used to be about 100 people and you've got so many layers of management and so many layers of engineers inside the company, suddenly the company is forced to be surviving with 30% less people than that. Now, when that kind of opportunity occurs, two things is happening. First, everybody is going to take more work than they used to be. You're going to have engineers who used to take, say, three to four rigs. Now they have to manage six to seven rigs. You're going to have... uh, multiple of workloads increasing but at the same time you i tend to see it as an opportunity right it's an opportunity for those in you know at whatever stage in their career to 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 open up themselves and see okay this is something new uh this may open up a lot of new positions in the company a lot of uh, people in particular for example a lot of people uh i presume like in qatar in nigeria in many places a lot of people that used to be a position that used to be held by expats now are suddenly disappearing. So a lot of expats are moving away, going back to UK and the States. So there's actually a lot of new opportunities that are showing up that's uh, for, for people coming in, in the national companies, uh, sorry, at the national level, that can open up to a new opportunities, though um, it may be a scary opportunity, but it's still an opportunity. So coming back to your question, um, how has the downturn been? It's been tough. Right? I mean, we've been dealing with losing about a third of uh, most of our workforce, and it's a lot of uh, increase in the workload. But at the same time, if we want to see it on the bright side, it opens up a lot of exposure to new uh, level of experiences, uh, to, to different kind of customers, to different kind of technologies, and opportunity for people to step up if they see it that way. But to see it that way, sometimes we do need to be more aggressive than we, we, uh, than we normally are, right? I mean, aggr- by aggressive, what I mean is that we need to actively opportunities when they arise. That, that's how I see the downturn. And um, I, to your question, I think I'm just being lucky, to be frank. I mean, uh, but uh, I, I tend to see that the downturn is actually an opening door for other opportunities as well. That's amazing to hear you say that, actually, because uh, 
most of the time when people talk about uh, the period between 2014 to 18, it's usually with uh, an air of almost disaster. But uh, I think I'm seeing now the mindset you're talking about to see, okay, that okay, this is a bad thing happening around me right now. But now there's more work to do and there's more chance to get myself noticed. So the uh, the the <coughs> opportunity you're speaking about, I think that's a very key role in surviving, especially in the oil industry, because this isn't something new. I'm sure you know this. The downturn that happened, it's 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 happened in 2008, I think, when the oil prices kind of just went down, and it's something that, uh, unfortunately, because the uh, the market is always volatile in a way. Uh, would you say that if you want to survive in the oil industry, if you really want to make a career that goes a long way, you need to have this this uh, mindset of bad things can be an opportunity for me to progress sometimes? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't put it that way. Because, I mean, uh, because again, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I do see uh, 2014 events as, it, it is a sad event, right? Many of my colleagues, many of their friends and families have to lose jobs and wages and, and a supporting structure for their family income um, to, to see it on, from that perspective. But like, like you mentioned, uh, it's, it, it can be seen from that perspective if you'd like. Now, one thing I would like to point out is that as an industry, I think uh, we've been pretty much pampered by high profitability. You know, we, we've been talking about, I mean, if we look, if we look back far enough, uh, oh, this is my perspective, right? If you look far enough in, in compare ourselves to other industries, like, for example, of the food manufacturing and consumer goods, for example, right? I mean, this is a, this may digress from your point, but what I'm trying to say is that if we look at the candy factories for a moment, the way they manage their logistics system is up to that point where a single minute of delays and up to the cents and the dimes of logistic cost is being paid into attention. Right, because they're running at such a high volume and low profitability market. While at the oil companies and the oil operators, as an industry, we don't tend to think that way. Mm-hmm. You know, for decades, you know, when, when the margins is in the order of 20, 30 percent, um, we we like we're we're more loose in in how we manage mm-hmm. our finances, in how we manage the businesses, and we had a lot more room and to 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 manage these difference in costs. And so when the shock of 2014 came. It's only a big shock for the entire industry to start managing the cost, you know, uh, at a very abrupt level. Like for, to another, for another example is that, I don't know if you heard, I mean, some companies have a tendency to constantly review their uh, employees and see what, what is called as a bottom 10%, a bottom 5 and a bottom 10%, and keep on replenishing the new uh, talents and then keep on releasing the bottom 10, bottom 5%, so it keeps uh, getting a competitive uh, edge of the workers in their own companies. Mm. Now, we have to acknowledge that in the oil industry, we're not that firm, right? I mean, competency development is there, and I think the entire industry is improving rapidly within the past decade. But uh, if we compare ourselves to other industries which are more competitive, we don't have that tendency of attritioning people naturally based on their performance. So when the shock came in 2014, we suddenly have to release so many percentage of our people that unfortunately some many of them are good but some of them are also of the lower performance end so i think uh, 
on on a brighter uh, on a, on a broader scope that's how i see the downturn as well right i mean we have to see it from both the oil industry perspective but we also have to see what what is exactly happening at comparing the oil industry to other industries as well you know what's different mm-hmm. between them and us and how do we respond to this uh, crisis so to say um, yeah. just my two cents I actually agree with you uh, largely because if if we just want to put things in perspective in 2013 uh the price of oil was almost was was basically as high as 112 to $12 per barrel and in 2016 right. the lowest it reached was $26 per barrel so that's that's a massive shift in how you operate and what margins you have and the room for error basically and where you're operating with less people uh there's been so actually just just from an industry perspective i think the last three years particularly there have been so many innovations in the oil and gas sector specifically in the in the uh analysts roles and basically the whole process of the oil industry is becoming more efficient and sometimes right. some people argue that uh, it, it means that the jobs that were lost don't get uh replaced but basically it just means that new job roles get opened up and that's way what you said about having people who have higher uh, competency, basically. So it's the, the people who saw that, okay, this is an opportunity and I need to improve myself to fit these new job roles are the people who are really getting back into the industry now that things are kind of coming up. So that's very, very, very interesting, actually. Uh, so what about going forward now? Uh, things are pretty much uh, getting back to regular levels. It's about... Uh, 60 70 dollars per barrel it's been jumping in between there uh what do you think it is right now do you think that this is a good place to be or do you think that uh things might change with all the geopolitical events happening around us right now right like like many people would say right if we can guess the price of the oil many of us would be rich by now (laughs) nobody can actually (laughs) guess where it's gonna go for the next 24 hours and that's that's the funny thing about our industry I mean, but from uh, th- this is how I see it uh, as an Indonesian and as a professional, right? I think we also need to see it at a global level, but also need to see it at a national and a regional level, mm-hmm. because uh, both a uh, different perspective become uh, gives us a different idea of where the industry is heading. I mean, to give you an example, in my country, globally, I think the trend is going to stabilize. But in Indonesia, we have a big challenge ahead of us in terms of exploration, in terms of oil industry and policies and whatnot. So um, I think each of us in different in, in different locations do need to be um, very acutely aware of what's happening at the national level, at the regional level, and at the global level. So the, I mean, because this this gonna opens us in how the way we approach our own career. Um, like if, if somebody's graduating in Indonesia right now, I was act- I'm actually going to be telling them to be prepared to go overseas because we're going to be we're probably going to see one of the toughest decade ahead of us in terms of oil and gas activities. Not to be pessimist, but it's just uh, what's going to be happening and seems to be on that road. But at a global level, I think uh, the, the situation will, will stabilize at the moment. What what uh, and I'm speaking on my personal opinion, I'm not representing on any companies or anywhere. Mm-hmm. What we do need to be keenly aware is, uh, however, at the same time we're facing, on the background, a great transition of energy change, right? And that's something that we can uh, disregard of. Um, I do, I am aware uh, that uh, oil and gas have been a very stable uh, industry. Now this is a very interesting point. You know, just last uh, last week I met a colleague of mine. 
uh, he's a Dutch, you know, based in Saudi, and 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 uh, we were discussing about how uh, Shell, one of the biggest oil companies, when when they established the first well, it's actually in Indonesia in 1885, and we were discussing that. Um, can you imagine an industry today that have the luxury of saying that for the last 130 years, pretty much nothing has disrupted our industry? I mean, if we if we set aside for a moment, if we look at the banking industry, if we look at the technology industry, if we look at the transportation, there's always going to be a lot of disruptions happening every other decade, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but the oil industry has that privilege, you know. Since the 1900s, the industry has been pretty much going up. Other than cyclical demands, it's been pretty much stable. But now, we're facing quite a different future because we do see that there is a different technologies that's going to be approaching the, the, the entire energy industries. It may take time. It may be not in our lifetime, but it's something that needs to be taken account for. So on a bigger scale, um, I am optimist that the oil and gas will stabilize. Though at a national level, I do see a lot of challenges in my country in particular. And like, um, you're, you're based in Qatar, right? I, I'm aware that Qatar is going to pretty much increase their LNG capacity between now and 2023, yeah, I think quite really, rapidly. They're really gambling on it, basically. Yes, yes. And, and you can see that the biggest trend that's driving you know, at an overall scale is the U.S. shale boom. It's probably going to be there for the next decade, so, so it's going to be a lot of activities going on. Now, what we do not know is how will this affect the activity level around the world, right? We, we don't know whether we're going to have an oversupply of gas. We don't know whether we're going to have an oversupply of oil. This is something that's, you know, as usual, like we mentioned earlier, it's very hard to predict where it's going to go, but I think it's going to stabilize, though perhaps not at the level that we used to deal with. Now, I do want to make a second point, though. My second point is that we also need to see what the oil companies are saying. You know, um, I'm as a, like, like a, I mean, coming back to uh, somebody who just graduated, for example. Mm -hmm. When was the last time that in the college campus um, we are, uh, you know, we are encouraged to see, hey, have you guys do a research of what BP, Exxon, Chevron, and Shell are doing right now? You know, have we listened to what their annual reports are saying about how they see the future? So I think this is a good uh, a good perspective for those of us who just graduated from college. Is try to see where are the oil companies thinking they will be in the next five years and ten years, because it actually gives a a little bit of an idea of uh, where do they see the new energy, you know, where do they see the stabilizing of prices, you know, how how do they see the big. Uh, market transition from a global level to a regional level of, uh, let's say, the LNG market and also the shale oil and whatnot. So I guess that's, that's just a second tip I would, I would say, is that because sometimes as an engineer, you know, we, we tend to focus so much on the technicalities of things, we actually forget to take a few steps back and actually try to listen. What are the big five or the big ten oil companies are actually saying when they speak to their investor? Because actually there may be a lot of clues hidden in that. Exactly, exactly. It's actually very interesting that you said uh, your earlier point about the oil industry kind of taking their prosperity almost for granted. I actually just realized that what you said is actually very true because there's been so many years of continuous growth in the oil industry that we just kind of like assumed that it was always going to continue. And people just became a bit lax and there were not too many... Uh, 
uh, technological innovations. Of course they were, but uh, let me just use the analogy of the schools, for instance. Uh, my professors back in university, uh, they, they, they basically use the same teaching methods that they did that they were thought with and the point you made actually is very interesting about um, looking forward to how the oil companies give their outlook of the future um, throughout my time in school most of what we did was basically theoretical work particularly engineering so you have drilling engineering reservoir engineering and production engineering and then you have geology and all these things but you, as uh, I, I think one of the weaknesses of uh, of engineering school is the they make you focus so much on the theoretical parts of things, on the uh, operation parts of things, that they don't give you a general idea of the industry you're actually trying to get into. Um, earlier this year, that was the first time I ever read the uh, BP Energy Outlook, and this is something they release every year. And throughout my time in school, I never knew this was a thing. And it was like <laughs> I was in my own little bubble. Basically, I was in my own little bubble. I was trying to get into an industry, studying very hard for my degree, but yet I knew basically nothing about the industry I was trying to get into. And this is the, the this is the reality that many people that are just coming out of school are faced with. They realize that they spent so long learning about the degree and they know nothing about the industry they're trying to get into. And that was uh, actually for me personally, that was a huge uh, that was a wake huge up show. call. Yeah, it was a huge wake up call because I like. I, I know nothing about this industry. I, I had to take time to start learning about things and start reading things up on my own. And I, and I think that that is the next level of growth in your uh, understanding of how this industry works specifically. And then you see the bigger picture. You say, okay, it's not just oil and gas. There's a huge energy industry out there and more technologies are coming in. And actually, it's very exciting once you start to get to learn about these things because it is very exciting for the future. And being ignorant of these things is so dangerous, especially when you're just coming out of school because <laughs> it's a huge culture shock. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> it's a huge culture shock. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, so so going forward now, uh, let's talk about the other energy uh, technology since we kind of brought that off. So let's go into it. First, let's start with Indonesia. You mentioned that uh, Halliburton uh, have some operations with um, geothermal resources. And for people who don't know, people just assume that uh, Halliburton is just a service industry, but they do many other things that go beyond just uh, servicing the, uh, the oil and gas sector, basically. And drilling operations has a variety of uses, and Halliburton always offers those services. So... As far as geothermal goes, uh, and I, I know that it might not be a big uh, player in energy generation or power generation, rather. What role does it play currently in Indonesia? Is it just for heating or have there been advanced um, uses for geothermal resources? Okay, um, so I guess we'll take a little bit step back and explaining a little bit. So geothermal um, is basically trying to tap the heat that's coming from underground. Um, and then try to produce that as a steam, and then the steam is going to generate a turbine, and the turbine generates the electricity. Mm -hmm. So Indonesia is actually one of the biggest potentials of geothermal in the world. We have about what we call a 24 gigawatt potential, out of which I think we developed less than 10% so far. So um, in terms of developed capacity, we're still far behind, um, because at the same time, uh, Indonesia as a country, we still have uh, subsidized fuel, um, on the uh, you know diesel and gasoline, and we also have uh, quite a lot of uh, coal reserve that we're still using into for the power generation. So it's going to be a quite a balancing act try to develop the geothermal. But 
So, but on a bigger scale, the government is serious in developing the geothermals. Um, Indonesia has what is called a 23% renewable energy target that we hope we're going to achieve in in in, uh, in in the next several years in the next decade, mm-hmm. and uh, geothermal is going to be a big part of it. So, coming back to your question, whether Halliburton is involved, um, it it is a, a niche industry, I would say. I mean, in terms of size, it's it's not comparable that much to the oil and gas sector in Indonesia, but uh, it, it it is something new and it's something that the country is investing for the future. There's a lot of uh, projects going on, although and sometimes it it you know it uh, it's interrupted. You know, like for the recent election years, you know, it basically have stopped for the past one year. But we will we remain optimistic that it's going to continue to develop in the future. So uh, yeah, it is a big part of Indonesia, and hopefully we can continue to develop it in the future. Hopefully, hopefully. Uh, okay, this is this is actually a very weird tangent, but let's just explore this a little bit. Uh, you you mentioned the government and the projects being put on hold. Another thing that is quite surprising that I learned coming out of school was just how important policy plays in terms of. Uh, uh, green green lighting energy projects and basically just determining how how the technology goes in terms of which ones get the investments and which ones become the mainstay in the country. So uh, it was very interesting for me because I'm still learning a lot about like global uh, policy making, especially with the onset of all the climate concerns as well. So in in Indonesia, uh, as you mentioned, what do you think is the uh, mindset of the population and of the government in terms of energy policy right now, uh, considering the whole uh, the climate concerns and everything that's been going on in the past few years? Or the past year, rather, it's 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 really it's really not been that long, to be honest. This is actually a favorite subject of mine, always. So, do you, if you don't mind, I'm gonna, probably going to spend more time on this. <laughs> I don't so, mind. So I, to, to come real quickly to your first question about how is the mindset of the Indonesian, what's the immediate target, and how do we see the outlook? I think in terms of energy policy, our primary goals, right, is to provide an affordable. Uh, and and, and uh, something that is accessible for the entire Indonesian population. To give an idea is that Indonesia is spanning over 13,000 islands. So we have about 230 million of population, but it's not concentrated into a single main island, right? If you notice on the map, it's, it's all bits and pieces, and uh, there's all kinds of small islands that has challenges in, in uh, accessing the uh, same price of energy. So for the country, I think the biggest priority is to provide energy at an accessible and an affordable price. So that's going to be the first target that we are, you know, that the country is trying to do and it's actually heading a good step toward that direction. To, 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 to briefly uh, put an example, like the, the government, one of the ministry recently has just installed a lot of solar capacity in remote villages because they acknowledge that it's going to be very hard to power those remote villages by building a main grid. You know, it's going to take decades, but instead it's, we're going to build small grids and microgrids inside the villages. So these are the steps that the country is doing toward the energy side. Now, on the bigger level, at an industry scale, uh, we, we are developing a lot of natural gas. Um, I think Indonesia's potential in the future is more towards the natural gas, and we're trying to utilize more of them to be uh, utilized at a national level. And and you're, you're, you bring a point about the climate, right? It's something that, again, I'm speaking on a personal term here. Okay. Know, I'm not representing any organization. <laughs> okay. it's, it's a, I'm going to put a disclaimer there. Right? I mean, because as, as, a, as an industry, we, we are challenged with that big question. Mm-hmm. How is the climate change 
where is the oil industry is heading, you know, what exactly are we doing? So this actually comes back to a point that I bring earlier about the oil companies. Many of the oil companies, especially those based in Europe, acknowledge that the challenge ahead of us is going to be different. Mm-hmm. Acknowledge that there is a scientific evidence that back the idea that certain aspect of the climate change is driven by the utilization of hydrocarbons. So I think uh, it is important for us uh, to, to acknowledge that what the scientists are saying as opposed to what the popular media are saying. Because uh, if, if you, I don't know if you're aware, I mean, in, in I think 2013 study, I think 97% of uh, peer review public journals does acknowledge that the scientists state that they agree that climate change are man-made. You know, and that we have to make the actions and what to reverse on it. So, so we need to take that, you know, you know, one of the first steps of solving a problem is to acknowledge, okay, it exists. What does it mean for us? I mean, that's something that we just need to be honestly, you know, um, you know, it, it's not going to take a single year. It's going to take decades of, you know, working hard, you know, how does the Paris Agreement goes here and there. It's, it's going to be a big challenge. Mm-hmm. But I think the first step, especially for the young generation, is to acknowledge and try to find an educated opinion of what is, what is the reality and what is, what is just a popular media opinion. So, so to that point, I do have acknowledged uh, that in Indonesia, it does not take the primary priorities just yet. In Indonesia, the, in terms of climate change policies, the biggest contribution that we uh, committed to the, to the global level is actually to reduce the, the amount of deforestation that we have. Because that's actually one of the biggest factors that's driving uh, the climate factor in Indonesia. Is that the level of deforestation in Indonesia is very high. And one of our commitment as a country is try to reduce that to a more manageable level. So that is our primary approach, and then the energy takes a second or a third uh, level of priorities behind that. Because any nation need to take uh, first into account what is their primary requirement, right? What is their primary needs, mm-hmm. and what can be supported politically by the public, right? If we say, yes, we're committed to the climate challenge, but we cannot provide an accessible and affordable energy, that will not go with the people. Right? It needs to find a very, very fine balance between providing the affordable and accessible energy, while at the same time we can shift the longer trend toward the more, uh, you know, sustainable renewable energies. So that, that's a, a little bit of uh, my perspectives on the policy side. Now, I do have a last point, though. I do feel and I do agree that, uh, what, to coming back to your point, that policy is interesting. I actually plan to pursue a public policy studies later in the year, so I'm going to take a quite a step back in my career. I'm going to take a break and try to pursue a public policy studies uh, later in the year. So, that, yeah, that, that's my view on policy because I do feel it's very important in, in how the energy industry approach in the next decades. So. Okay. Okay, okay. So since we're here, actually, uh, energy policy has actually become one of my favorite topics. And since you brought it up, it's... You, you kind of pushed me in the direction, so I'm going to ask you the question I have in my mind. Uh, you talked about priorities for different countries, and let me, let me put it like this. For instance, when you, when you look at countries like, um, like the USA and most of Europe, they've reached a certain point of um, 
economic development and they have like certain infrastructures in place where they can look at um, certain issues with a different way than let's say countries like Indonesia or Nigeria that I'm more familiar with. Uh, in Nigeria, for instance, not not everybody in the country has already access to electricity, and we don't already have like a uh, national grid that works and twenty four hour power supply. So, uh, if you brought up the the uh, the topic of of climate um, activities to basic Nigerians, they wouldn't really support it politically because it's not in their own best interest when they don't even have the basic necessities they need to have a 24-hour power supply in their homes. They don't have the advantages that uh, comes with a stable energy grid in the country. And this is where uh, it makes the energy conversation a bit more complicated for developing countries especially. Because if, if you were to say that, okay, coal is bad, but coal is probably one of the most efficient ways of generating electricity and it can scale exponentially, and you say, okay, developing countries can't use coal plants anymore, I don't think many countries would be so eager to jump on board and say, okay, we, we care so much about the planet that we're going to take up this cause. And it's just the way people think about this because people think about policy as it affects them. That is, that is also what you brought out. Like, this is, this is what, what fits the climate of, of the country we're in. And it, the, the next question then is, okay, this is something that's it's, it's a real issue, but we can't exactly jump in because we don't have that kind of uh, freedom yet. But what can we do now? And, and the approach you gave for Indonesia is, okay, deforestation we can deal with right now. But when it comes to the, uh, to the power sector, that's where things get a bit more complicated. And this, this uh, conversation, it, it keeps getting repeated in most countries that are, are still developing, especially in India, actually, that there's, they are commissioning so many coal plants and they're just for the first time getting access to electricity, cheap electricity. And they're, they're obviously excited about this. So I, I think winning, winning uh, certain nations of uh, dirty fuels for, mm -hmm. let me say, it's, it's going to be a bit, a bit difficult in the future. But uh, for me personally, I, I think it's going to be exciting to see how it all plays out because I think right now, uh, especially for the next few years, it's going to be the most interesting time for uh, energy conversations. And that's why I'm very happy that I have this podcast because I think I, I, I am in very good company right now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we started with the oil and gas uh, career talks. and then we Yeah, how did we get here? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's a good thing, I mean, we, we, that we talk about how the context of the climate and energy in terms of developing nations, right? Because that's actually one of the most interesting ones. Now, I don't, when we talk about the climate and the energy, I think uh, I want to word my words carefully here. But I guess what many people in the developing nations, if, if we want to look at what the problem is, honestly, you know, stop beating about the bush, basically, um, we need to understand first the big concept of displaced hardship. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept. Basically, when we talk about the climate impact, there is this big concept that's called displaced hardship, is that the, 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 the reality is the, the shifting of the climate has been uh, the effect of the industrialization of the Western world, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Now that they are at that level of richness, they got the industrialized, uh, very mature. You know, that's this, this last 100 year of industrialization has now resulted in significant accumulations of carbons and any significant uh, change in our climate. But the impact is going 
into the cheap, uh, sorry, into the, the weakest nations with more than likely have some of the weakest political institutions in the developing nations. So, mm-hmm. so the, it, it's, a very, uh, it's a very complex situation. It's like some people would like to say the climate change is one of the toughest challenges that the mankind is ever going to face because what's hap- it's caused in the rich world and the impact is being felt in the developing world. So, and the, how do we balance this, right? Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, those, those in Nigeria and Indonesia and in, in many other developing nations would say, well, it's, you generated it, now why do we need to bother fixing it up when you can't even uh, address that same matter in your countries? Now, this, <laughs> this is going to be... <laughs> this is going to be a very complex question because if we look at it at a very honest level, um, we, we look at the, the amount of carbon generation per capita and we still see many of the Western nations still have very high carbon generation per capita. And, and uh, although China has a lot because they got a lot of people and then India is going to have a lot because they have also many people. But at, at a broad scale, uh, it's going to be a lot of balancing act in the policies and the politics. And coming back to your point, yes, it's going to be very challenge, very challenging to convince the Nigerians and the Indonesians and the Malaysians try to put the climate change as a priority. That's my first point. Now, the second point, though, is when we talk about energies and climate and everything else, the big trend that that is, I think, this is this is a feeling that that we need to look ahead is uh, the electrification of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Right. To me, this is one of the biggest trends that we're looking ahead of us. Um, we may, I don't know if you realize or not, the biggest uh, manufacturers of electric vehicles is actually China. Yes, they, they, got, they got the biggest fleet of electric vehicles. And you can imagine what's going to happen if within the next one or two decades, many EVs is going to start you know, uh, pre- being on the road. And the, the transportation sector that has been mostly driven by the oil and gas is going to slowly start to shift into the electric vehicle side. So the question for the developing nations to me is whether there is the political will to look ahead, and maybe we can skip this whole transition of uh, oil to gas and gas to the electric vehicles, when at the same time we're seeing a lot of reductions in the renewable energy cost. Now, whether it can happen or not, we don't know. Right? Uh, but I think the key for the, develop, uh, for the developing nations is to look two to three decades ahead of us and try to predict, you know, this is to me, this is like, if you, I don't know if you, I'm sure you've heard the case example where, for example, in India, there is not, or, or in many countries in Africa, there is not a lot of uh, phone landlines. Mm-hmm. But instead, what happened is just people just jump and skip over to mobile phones, right? Exactly, yes. I mean, perhaps that's going to be the trend that we need to look at. I mean, we, we do know that the, the power generations is mostly now is in oil, gas, and coal. And there is this big trend of making gas as the clean energy transition period. And then later on, it's going to be the electric vehicles and all these uh, renewable energies and their base load capacity, let's say 30 years down the line. So I think between now and then, there's going to be a lot of changes. But the biggest hurdles, like you said, is going to be the policies. That's how I see it anyway. In my countries, it's very hard. It's very hard to convince changes in something that's uh, already set up for the past 20 years and probably going to be set up for the next 30 years. If you can imagine when somebody built a power plant, they already have a planning horizon of at least 20 to 30 years ahead, right? Yes, they do. 
So uh, there is a lot of uh, political pressures how to maintain that level of uh, industry, how do we keep the people in employment. So so energy industry as, as, as a whole is a very uh, large inertia. It, it takes a long time to shift the energy industry from one direction to another. And uh, policy, to me, is, is one of the key points. But it's going to take a lot of political wills and try to convince the general public on where the country needs to be. It's going to be a challenge. I, that's a lot short of it. It's going to be much more. I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be much, even much more challenging than those in the advanced nation, because we do have to admit level of education, level of public awareness, you know, the level of coverage in the media. It's all different. Yes. You know, in the West, they've been talking about climate change for the past three decades. Pro- probably now, if you look at a newspaper in the developing nations, you know, that's not our priorities. So try to, you know, balancing that with the public support, it's going to be quite a challenge ahead of us. But I, I remain optimist. <laughs> me too, me too. We have to. There is no, really no other choice, basically. Yes, I do agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this has been a very wonderful conversation, Putra. I want to thank you very, very much for uh, being on the show. It did not go as I expected, but I think it went in the best possible way, basically. Yeah, thanks, thanks again for having me, Olu. Um, it's, it's nice uh, to, to meet you over LinkedIn, and I think, uh, like, like we mentioned, right, it, it went tangent for a while, but I think uh, it, it's a good, uh, pertinent question, mm-hmm. because uh, as an industry, and especially the younger generations, I think we need to remain optimist, because uh, even, I mean, if you notice in the BP outlook, even in the most pessimist case, in the next 50 years, the oil and gas is still going to grow. Yes, it is. It's not going anywhere. We have the energy sector. We're going to have the petrochemical industry. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, the Gulf states are currently developing a lot of uh, downstream sectors because they're seeing a lot of growth in the petrochemicals. So, so in terms of industry, there's going to be a lot of people need to, need to be replaced, and the industry going to continue to stabilize, and it's going to continue to, to grow in the next at least 30 to 50 years. You know, we're probably not going to be around anymore. So that, that's, that's a first question. But we do, we do, as, a, as an educated uh, people in each of our nations, we do need to start asking the difficult questions, right? Mm-hmm. As a whole, where is the world is heading? Where is our countries are going? We may not be thinking for our generations, but we do need to ask those difficult questions that are not just pertinent to our careers, but it's going to be pertinent to our national development and the region and at the global level. So again, I uh, appreciate your time for having me here. It's been an honor. So I think we had pretty good discussion. Hopefully yeah. one of these days catch up again. It's yeah. been it's been wonderful. Thank you so much, Putra. I cannot thank you enough. And I hope you have a wonderful evening ahead of you. Hi again, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Putra. You see, something I've realized since I started the podcast is how uh, how many dynamics go into a simple issue. And the topic of energy is something that has many dynamics. And the dynamics we should be going to be exploring on the show are sometimes very complex. So I want to bring you as many points of views as I can. I'm not going to demonize or mystify a certain aspects of the conversation. I really want to have an unbiased and engaging honest conversation about different things and i'm excited i was able to do that today thank you so much for listening to the uh episode i hope you learned something uh 
This is again the Energy Talk podcast, and this was produced by yours truly. A big shout out to Jensen. I'm sure you heard the new music; it is awesome. Uh, if you would like to see more of his work, it's the link will be in the description below. So, thank you so much for listening, and I will see you all next week. Enjoy the music as we close. <laughs>